Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Me too. Really? Yeah. Is it COVID? I don't know. Maybe. You know, I mean, the second if I thought I had it, all of a sudden I wouldn't be able to breathe. Mm. I'd have body aches. You know how the mind works. It's very, it's crazy how that works. I had a a real interesting A and B with that. I'm not going to get into the specifics. Because it's my own body and my own life. <laughs> Fuck you, I'm not telling. But I had a situation like a year ago where there was something I was really concerned about on my body. And while I was getting it checked out, it really hurt. You know, it was like I, I was constantly fixated on it and I was like having some pain. And then I get it checked out. And the second, literally like minutes after I found out exactly what it is and it wasn't going to kill me, I looked down and I'm like, wait, it doesn't hurt anymore. That's weird. (laughs) You know, it was like this pretty obvious A and B where I'm like, maybe there was pain, but I was definitely making it way worse. I've I've had that, man. The mind is powerful. It is. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you should never, ever use the internet to diagnose your illnesses oh that's a fact well i mean cancer it's all cancer or yeah within four clicks you have cancer yeah (laughs) yeah it's 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 too easy i mean it's like yeah all those nondescript symptoms it's like stomach pain yeah cancer it's possible (laughs) it's possible if you have stomach pain you have cancer you know the robot doesn't know that Uh, how's it going brad uh it's okay it's good um just chilling, you know. Spent a, some time out on the playground, freezing my butt off. Yeah, you told me you were selling weed to kids today. Yeah, made some money from the from the eighth graders. Yeah, they're like, "Yo, yo, is <laughs> old man New England here with the grass?" Yo, <laughs> screw those kids. They don't know what they're getting. I'm selling them fucking oregano. <laughs> when I was a kid, I went to buy weed once, and the guy tried to sell us green crayon shaving. <laughs> You were, what, was a real four? <laughs> we were old enough to look at it and be like, you fucking serious, dude? Damn. You know, like, like I'd seen a lot of, I've seen people go into their parents' cupboards right. and take herbs and spices and put it in a bag and pretend it's weed. Right. And if you don't know any better, you know, it's like, okay, it's green, it's dry, it looks like something. 
But I mean, I, I looked at this kid. We're like, dude, it's not even forest green. <laughs> this, this is like lime green. I'm like, come on, fella. You know, I wonder what happened to a kid like that. You what know? do you think is wrong with us? That's, that's probably an insurance bad. salesman or something now. Oh, he's probably a successful salesman of something. That's the thing. I know. I know. It's crazy how that works. I just, I was covering something on the tune up yesterday. We do a segment called This Day in Music History. And, uh, yesterday was like an anniversary of Frank Sinatra Jr. being kidnapped. Oh shit! I don't know if you know this, but in like in like I 1963, something. Yeah, he was like eating chicken in his underwear in like a hotel in Lake Tahoe, and these people came and swept him up, and he basically was blindfolded and in a trunk for two days, and Frank Frank Sinatra had to pay 240 grand to right. get him. Um. Which is like, it's questionable whether old Frank had some ties to people that, you know, you might not want to get on the wrong side of. But maybe that was them. <laughs> yes. Wait, what were we talking about just before that? Because this was getting to a point. Uh, we were talking about psychosomatic diagnoses. And so, oh, right. To- so this guy, this guy who kidnapped Frank Sinatra's kid when, you know, he ended up, of course, got caught like two days after and went and went to trial. But his reasoning was that he was helping two families at once. He's like, I'm getting money for my family, but I'm also helping the estranged Sinatra family, <laughs> you know, get back together and really retie their family uh, roots by kidnapping the kid. Right. But the thing that really stood out to me is the guy only got four and a half years in prison and got out and became a millionaire What in real estate and owned like houses in Texas and Mississippi and apartment in LA and ended up being this like massively successful rich person. So all this was getting to the point that the guy who sells lime green crayon shavings is you're right, is probably rich and doing really well. (laughs) Yeah. That's just the way the world shakes out. There's a sucker born every minute. I know I'm usually him, you know, I I definitely recall being a young and naive kid who's like, Maybe it is a kind of weed that we don't know about. You know, like I think I'm sure that I I definitely I don't know if I ever bought anything that wasn't weed, but I definitely smoked some shit like yeah. rolled up leaves that the fucking oh, older yeah. kids were like, here, dude, this is a new kind of pot. It's and called get- Arkansas magic, man. It just <laughs> smells like parsley. I'm telling I you. I mean, that that literally <laughs> happened to me. I smoked like half of a fucking like maple leaf or some shit like rolled up. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing Ugh. what you think. I had a friend of mine, we we walked to our, I think, like a seventh or eighth grade school dance, and he had convinced himself that you could get high by smoking incense. Ugh. Oh, God. So we had these little, like, incense cones uh, that were, like, trying to smoke uh, before the dance. Like poison. I know. I don't even know what it is. And then, like, a principal came up and we're like, oh, God. And I ended up, like, putting it in my pocket and patting it. And then, so not only went to this school dance smelling like incense, not stoned, with a huge hole in my pocket from where I burnt through. Not the finest look. Not the finest you probably, look. Uh, you probably could get wicked high from smoking fucking incense because it's like <laughs> I mean, pure poison. I, different kind of high. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I could also like, I could smoke my couch. I'd probably feel something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> might, still might not be the best idea. Uh, I bet, I bet Chris has smoked, Chris Shiflet has probably smoked <laughs> something weird along the years, oh, yeah. you know? He's had, he's had his moments for sure. Yeah, something out of a tin can somewhere. 
You don't go on those squat tours in Europe and be in no use for a name as long as he was <laughs> without without getting into the, the dirty business. You know, you know? Um, thanks to Max Huber, who has been on the show. He was mm-hmm. he's gave us the mystery friend, but um, he gave me this other one that I didn't ask about. You just reminded me of it, which was he he's like, you're asking about a the thing that we ended up asking about or B trying to score meth on Polk street and ending up with crack. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I don't know if Chris is going to want to talk about that. And Prague sounds more interesting anyway. I want to answer that to your kids these days. (laughs) That's funny, man, but it was great. Chris came on. What a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to him. What a a lively spirit, a lively guy, you know, just has like a, bubbling kind of personality i wanted to talk to him longer yeah chris is on the ball he's 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 got stuff to talk about and uh i i got a funny story though brad that i saved for the intro okay let's hear it are we too far into the intro funnier should i save than, it for the outro than smoking your uh <laughs> smoking some incense, smoking crayons and incense. <laughs> so so you know uniquely gaslight got to open for foo fighters a couple times um you know we played like some festivals with them and then had had a, a couple shows. There was one in um in in Italy. It was like this crazy show on a giant like compound. You know how it is. Like you know, band like that just brings like they bring the show. Right. You know what I mean? Like you don't need a place with everything. They got everything. Yeah. They got this huge production. And uh, and then I think you know a day or two after we played a show in Madrid in Spain, and it was like an arena show. So obviously this is just a unique experience anyway. I'm at an arena in Madrid, Spain. It was my wife's birthday was around then. This is like June or July 2011, somewhere around then. And we were feeling pretty sprightly, even just like being there. You know, that's something like we never really got used to shit like that. Like, you know, you're in a backstage at an arena in Spain opening for one of these bands and it's just like jesus christ like baller dude what happened like this is (laughs) wild you know uh so it was kind of like a party night we randomly had our friend andy diamond who's a sort of notorious new brunswick guy show promoter great guy and we used to bring him on tour uh he didn't do anything (laughs) Um, he would just come he had no touring skills he couldn't change his string or drive or you know he just came and made people feel good and he was feeling frisky and i think he had some beverages and even before the show we had we kind of hatched a plan to do something funny we're like we're the punk rock band at the arena show what's going to happen so the decision was to put andy diamond drunk in a gorilla suit to to intro gaslight anthem at this show okay so like we're the first band. Not, I mean, not many people know who we are anyway. And you know, the arena is opening up and we're about to play. And we sent like a little of five foot four Italian guy from East Brunswick, New Jersey in a gorilla suit up onto the <laughs> stage to just speak random letters of English that made no sense and kind of hop around and scream the gaslight at them. It was fucking <laughs> hilarious. So the show is fine. Like, I don't know. There's nothing too descript about the show. The thing that really stood out in my mind was, you know, after the show, I let myself let loose a little, had some drinks and I'm hanging out and me and my, you know, then girlfriend, now wife, like go out into the crowd. And, you know, it just had been a long time since I'd been in like an arena show environment. I mean, it might have even been since 
I saw like Rush when I was a kid or like something. And automatically I got really like lured into the experience. And after just a few minutes, I'm like looking around the crowd and I'm watching the Foo Fighters. I'm like, wow, this is like, it's an electric fucking show. This is like magical. There's like something going on here. And the one thing that really stood out to me is like the Foo Fighters and maybe Grohl specifically, there was not like a person in that arena who didn't think Dave Grohl wasn't talking to them. Right. You know, I'm like walking around this whole place, you know, hundreds of feet from the stage and these people in like the back row of the upper section, like this guy just had in their fucking hands, man. Like he is that kind of like, he's that kind of performer and they're that kind of band where like it somehow felt like a club show, you know, it was like this really just loud, intimate, sweaty experience. And then, you know, you do some research on Foo Fighters and that's just like what they do. Mm. You know, they are just a fucking powerhouse rock band. Right. Like, and they seem to do this everywhere they go in like every arena they play. And it's really spectacular to see, you know, and, and then you start to break it down. You'd be like, oh, that guy was in Scream. That guy was in Sunny Day Real Estate. That guy was in No Use for a Name. Like, that shit's cool. Right. You know, and you're seeing that too. Like, people who kind of came from the same world we did. And then the funniest part about this story is we go outside uh, after the show. I, you know, there's some... Uh, I think we were loaded out. We were waiting for, like, merch to count out or something. So we had a couple hours. Um, and we're sort of by the back where, like... You know, there's maybe 50, 100 like massive Foo Fighters fans like waiting back there. And, you know, we walk out to, to very little fanfare, you know, obviously <laughs> they're Foo Fighters fans. And, uh, you know, we're feeling pretty loose. And an American kid walks up to me and he's like, hey, what's up, man? I'm like, hey, American, what's going on? You know, we start chatting. Where are you from? Where are you from? He's like, yeah, yes. Yeah. So what, you know, what are you doing? Like, you, you know, how do you play music in a place like this? And he starts asking me these questions. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this, this, this. He's like, yeah, how do you guys do this and this? And I'm like starting to put it together. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, wait, this, these, this is a strange line of questioning. And then he asked me one more question and I figured it out. And I had to like ask the kid. I'm like, bro, I don't want to be a dick. I'm like, you know, I'm not Dave Grohl, right? <laughs> <laughs> And the kid's just like, uh, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah, of course. Like, yeah. Like, so, so what else are you doing tonight, man? Dude, the whole time. I was sitting there, like, in the middle of the conversation, being like, this is, this kid's weird. This is a strange line of questioning. He's asking me. And yeah, it turned out he thought I was Dave Grohl the entire time. Pretty funny, huh? That is I guess funny. I was a little slimmer in those days. I think I'm much taller than Dave Grohl, which, which made me think this guy wasn't the biggest fan, you know, right. it, it's like, you know how, I don't know if you experience this at all, but like, if you're like the one American kid in like Dusseldorf, Germany, and like the American band comes there, yeah, like, it's like, oh, we're American and like, I love everything, you know, I love Nickelback, so I love you guys. Like, <laughs> there's no what kind of music you're into anymore. It's just like these people in a different place. So... I think he was a, hmm. a, you know, a novice Foo Fighters fan who was, you know, 
playing off to be a bigger one and actually thought my fucking dirty ass is Dave Grohl after the show. <laughs> I was even amazed. I'm like, how do you how do you think he got out here so fast? Like, how did he shower and get out here so quick? And why does he have no security? I'm like, you know, you should put this together, fella. Newbie. Newbie yeah, to the whole scene. Newbie. But pretty funny. And then it definitely became a joke for a long time where people just like randomly walk up to me and be like, you're not Dave Grohl, right? <laughs> <laughs> like all my friends, my wife and shit. Yeah. I mean, I kind of look like him, I guess. Is it just a long hair and a mustache? Yeah, there's some, yeah, you know, if you don't know him or if, <laughs> <laughs> look for the guy with the long hair and the mustache. Yeah. Pretty funny though, huh? It is a funny story. I'm glad you told it. Yeah. This is a long intro. Sorry to anyone who tuned in. Just to hear Chris and just heard me and Brad for 15 minutes. You know what? It's my podcast. Go fuck yourselves. Um, <laughs> but please enjoy this interview with Chris. It's, it's delicious. It totally oh. splits them up. And not only that, but like we're recording the wave files too. So they're not MP3s. Oh, wow. I would recommend. Brad, it. I feel like you could get a professorship. Now in podcasting, know, like, yeah, you could probably get like some some guest professorship, I, dude. If Jonah is teaching podcast. I know <laughs> this is like it's a thing now. I don't know if you know that a lot of people have podcasts. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, the couple. I Chris, tell you, prof- professor Professor Worrell sounds awfully like Hogwarts esque. Dude, I my like dad it. was yeah. a professor. I, there is nice. a professor Worrell. Yeah, my dad was a professor. Nice. Do you know, Chris, do you know that his dad is a biblical archaeologist? No. But yeah, I know who, I, yeah. I know who I'm going to next time I want to argue about religion. <laughs> Not me, dude. <laughs> I'm going you for you're gonna be my one phone call for backup. <laughs> We'll call my dad. We can call my dad. All right, there you go. Because <laughs> I'm not I'm not uh I didn't it didn't take <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard that the other day that someone it, it was on a sports thing and that that famous uh, celebrity chef Dave Chang won a million dollars on who wants to be a millionaire, um, you know, raising money for f- food service and stuff like that it was a good cause. But he had to uh, use a sports writer named Mina Kimes for, for his phone a friend. And I couldn't help but think I'm like, wait, who do I call? Who Who would be like the person I know who just has... Uh, well-versed knowledge in in everything, basically. Oof. Who would yours be, Chris? Who would you go? Who's your go-to phone a friend if you were on the program? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think I know any. I know lots of people that I could go to if it was like who mixed Highway to Hell, <laughs> right? You know, exactly, like, yeah. something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's like I got a deep, deep roster for those right. kind of yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah. But for like everything else in the world, I, I am, I'm a little light. Yeah, yeah. I don't think yeah. we, any of us hang out with enough of those those types. Even even this this son of a professor. That's right. I'm a son of a professor too. Did you know that? I didn't know that. What's the yeah. uh, what's the professor of what? My dad was a sociology professor um, oh. for for a time. Interesting, and then um, and then he wasn't for <laughs> quite a while as well. <laughs> do you think that has uh, any anything to do with your you know general interest in in people? You know, like and the way they the way you know you seem like kind of an observer. It's pretty obvious with the podcast. You're curious about people. Is that from your dad? 
I don't think so. Cause it's funny. I don't think my dad had that. You know, I don't think oh, that really? was really part of his person. I mean, maybe, maybe it was. And, and it, I, and I just didn't see it. You know, I, I don't know. Um, it, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I, my dad passed away well, quite a while ago now when he was, he was in his early sixties. So it was like right after I joined Foo Fighters, my dad passed away, which is, um, gotcha. it's a bummer because like it, he died just a little before I was like really asking the big questions of life or wanting to like, mm, um, right. you know, pick his brain about, well, what'd you do when you were 18? You know, it's so like a yeah, lot of right. that stuff just kind of died with my dad. So I don't really know like why he went into sociology when mm. he did, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, so it's a bit of a mystery. Well, we'll, we'll call it a preternatural understanding. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> I think, I think for I think my my curiosity, um, you know, as far as like my own podcast goes, has always been like when it just became kind of clear to me pretty early in doing it that it was like the only way that I was ever going to wind up just having like a, a a lengthy conversation about a bunch of bullshit with like. Dwight Yoakam and Lucinda Williams and people like that. You <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? Because right, right. like, you know how it is in, in rock and roll. You meet a lot of like your heroes, but right. you don't necessarily have a deep conversation with them. Sure. It's like, yeah. it's at a gig and it's all crazy backstage and you're starstruck and you know that thing. Right. So um, that's, that's probably as much a driving force of it for me as, as anything. I mean, I just, it's funny. I just interviewed Tommy Lee a couple of days ago, you know, oh, wow. from the crew. And I, I just turned into like, I was like 11 years old. Like just, sure. like I just had my like list of everything. I always wondered when I was like staring at the back cover of shout at the devil or whatever, you know? Yeah. Cause you must've been, I mean, I read somewhere along the line of doing this research that one of your favorite groups ever is Hanoi rocks. Indeed. So Indeed. I'm sure. Uh, what, so I mean, for someone who's a Hanoi, Hanoi rocks like a you know naturalist, what wasn't Motley Crue like the second gen, like second generation, like? No, or was Motley well, Crue early enough? Well, Motley Crue was a little ahead. Of, well, as far as like being a kid in America, I knew Motley Crue years before I knew Hanoi Rocks. I discovered course, Hanoi yeah. Rocks like when they were kind of like they the last album that they made was like kind of starting to break through in America and we would like right. there was like a a one record store in in Galita that we would take the bus out to and they might have a copy of the latest Kerrang. Okay. You know? So yeah. it didn't seem like it came like regularly. It was just every now and again. So you started seeing their picture pop up in Kerrang and and stuff like that. And then MTV started showing a couple of their videos here and there. And, and so really like I discovered my, or I discovered Hanoi rocks right as they like fell apart because then the, you know, that car crash happened. Right. Um, but you know, it's interesting like that whole scene and what it, and, and all the bands that, that sort of came out of it. Like, you know, I grew up a little bit North of, of Los Angeles. And, Mm -hmm. and so that kind of changed, rock and roll it changed the rock and roll scene from like kind of like american metal to like um to like kind of like la glam rock you know yeah and, right but none of those bands really took from from hanoi's sound well that's you know, the thing for, hanoi's look you know for people that don't realize like they were the one band that kind of like actually rocked i mean like they had a well, little they, more punk to their vibe than just like glam right well i always i always thought of it i mean if you think of like the og glam rock stuff if you think of like new york dolls and obviously like right. ziggy and 
T-Rex and you could even throw like Al, the original Alice Cooper band maybe could get thrown in there and, and, um, and, uh, you know, maybe like Slade and, and Mott the Hoople or whatever, you know, like those bands weren't heavy metal bands. I mean, right. that's a pretty wide range of sound and a lot yeah, of them sure. were way more just kind of rock and roll, you know? Um, I think in New York Dolls is just like a straight up rock and roll band. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And not heavy metal at all. And so to me, you know, the stuff that, that happened in LA sort of post Hannah rocks, like was way more influenced by like Aerosmith and stuff like that. Right. Mm. And whereas to, to my ear, Hanoi rocks had a much more like, almost like just, I get, because they were European, it just sounded more European, you know, it was more like major key, minor key, not so bluesy, you know, right, right, right. right. Um, almost like, you know, if the damned were a little more colorful or something, you know, right. I yeah. kind of thought right. of them that way. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It was just different, but, um, and what, 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 like what year about was that switching in LA? Like, I like, I mean, I think two steps from the move came out in 84 and it was like right after that, that I started seeing flyers and ads in BAM magazine for bands like, you know, Guns N' Roses and Poison and, um, Jet Boy and Faster Pussycat and all that stuff came along in LA Guns and, you know, there was all those bands around. And so, you know, I think, I think that scene was, that was an interesting scene. I mean, cause I had started going to gigs when I was in junior high and started going to see, you know, I was going to see heavy metal bands, you know, if they came through Santa Barbara, we'd go down to LA and go see bands and stuff. And then when that shift happened and kind of like, I want to say like 85 ish, right around there. I'm fucking senile, man. I, I get the dates wrong all the time. <laughs> it's, it's so long. <laughs> Take it easy on yourself, you know? I mean, I know for people of, you know, our age and above, like, we talk about 1985. Like, oh, this is 19... It's a long fucking time ago now, you know? It Give really yourself. was. No, it wasn't it really that long was. ago. No, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it was just... It was just... It was I just still remember... Yeah, <laughs> some yeah. of it <laughs> it's it's really funny you know i mean i've talked about this before but like like i my as far as like what like a lot like it's ridiculous how much i revisit the early 80s sort of before that mm. more than almost anything else like if i'm going for a run you know that's like oh, the right. almost the only time i listen to music now is if i'm like exercising um, or maybe if I'm in the car, but if I'm like exercising, I have to listen to something kind of up. And so I always listen to like, you know, I just sort of scroll through the, the, um, you know, like stand up and shout by Dio or, you know, it's like always something <laughs> right. like that, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I need something like that to get my heart racing. But those, so, but what age were you when that stuff was coming out? I feel like there's always this comfort zone that people find in music and it's, and it's probably like that that few year window when it just like became yours, you know, like whatever that sure. music was, it doesn't matter. It, it became yours. There's some awful, awful hardcore stuff that I go back to. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, let me give this a test run. It's been about 20 years since I listened to this seven inch. And I'm like, fuck, that's not <laughs> good. You know, <laughs> like, well, you, you know, what's funny is like nine, like a lot of like the punk rock stuff that I was into in like the late eighties and through the, you know, well into the nineties, I trip out on that now when I listen to it, like how shitty those <laughs> records sound. It's stuff that I like, but it sounds like considerably worse than the stuff that was maybe recorded even a few years earlier. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's like, yeah, there so was a terrible, so, yeah, there was a thin. terrible transition into the eighties when like, 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that somebody has studied this and found a reason for it, but it was like, it was almost like they were trying too you hard. Professor. <laughs> that, that's what I'll be a professor of. <laughs> professor of early 80s recording techniques. I, I truly think it was like the process of people beginning to be able to record more economically. It wasn't you know, economical in the 80s because, still. I mean, there was like eight tracks that were economical, but it wasn't, it, you still had to go into a real studio. Right, exactly. Right, like right. even when I started recording music in like the early 90s, you know, recording studios and recording, it was still, it was kind of unreachable and it was hard. You know what I mean? You needed money, you needed time, you needed like, and that's why, you know, putting a demo out at that time was like having an album because yeah. you actually like managed to make it to a studio and lay it down. So I, I do think there's something to that. It was like the process of, and every studio at that time was owned by someone who was like big shit in the seventies. You know, mm, like they, right. they, when I was going to those studios, it was all dudes who were like, 12 years past their prime in like 1978, you know? So I think it was part of this switch between like, uh, you know, recording being this uh, sort of elusive thing that was so hard to get. And then, you know, what we have now, which is like, you know, your laptop. Yeah. It's, it's, it is an interesting thing. I mean, I, it's, uh, I, I wasn't around in the, in the early eighties for that way of a punk rock, you know, like, but you listen to like, you know, the records that I like from that era, like, you know, Adolescence and Agent Orange and Social mm -hmm. D and TSO and all that stuff. And those records, to my ear, still sound really good. Right. TSO like, records sound great, dude. You put on like, I don't know, like a No Use for a Name record from the early 90s. It doesn't sound so good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I mean, well, for reference, like where where was the first like No Use for a Name music recorded? I don't even know, you know, I mean, I didn't come in until, uh, 95. So okay. they had already had a few records under right, their belt. Right. But, um, but it is funny kind of what you're saying. I do remember that being a thing like, Oh yeah, man, this used to be like Boz Skag studio. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so, like, um, you know, I, I remember those kind of rooms being around. They all had one claim to fame, right? Like somebody yeah. who graced that studio about 13 years before. This was the recording console that that Leonard Skinner's Freebird was recorded <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> Why are there all these Tommy Two-Tone gold records on the wall? Right. Dude, his cousin used to engineer this shit. <laughs> Speaking of which, who, who and what was Legion of Doom? <laughs> How do you even know about that? Come on, I, yo, I go for the cuts, dog. <laughs> wow, that's that is like so that can't be on my Wikipedia page, but it is um, not. No, I'm it's not. Check. Legion of Doom was a band that um, that I was in for a minute uh, in tenth grade, <laughs> nice. and, it, and it was um, it was the second band I was ever in. The first one was called the Lost Kittens, and <laughs> um, but uh, Legion of Doom was me and my friend Mark. And my friend Jeff played drums and, um, uh, and my friend Chris Gillette played bass. And we did like, I think we did one gig, but it was quite a gig. And it was a gig that in some ways, you know, really like was, had a huge impact on me because we were the first band. This was the first like club gig I ever did. There was like this, uh, this pool hall in Santa Barbara okay. called Golden Eagle Pool Hall. Nice. And the, the lineup, this is a fucking sick lineup. It was Legion of Doom. Rat Pack, who mm -hmm. uh, I was not in, but soon... 
became the bass player. And, and they were like local Santa Barbara punk rock band that had a seven inch on mystic records and everything. And, okay. you know, and that was cool. Um, and then no effects. It was, oh, okay. I, I want to say it was no effects first gig in Santa Barbara. And then they like, uh, at least a couple of them moved to Santa Barbara for a little while. So that would have been my first encounter with no effects. Um, and then, and Dave Casillas was in Rat Pack at the time. And then right oh, after wow. that, he joined No Effects. Right. Um, and the headliner was that band, Excel. Oh, oh. So that was like not only my first club gig, but I'm, I would guess that had to have been the first like proper punk rock gig I ever went to. Wow. Legion of Doom with a, I mean, you guys were one for one. Yeah, I think there was a brief. There's, we had a brief um, reunion a couple of years later, but it didn't last long. I think we played like one kegger out in IV, and that was it. Oh, it's so funny. Legion of yeah. Doom didn't get to didn't get to record in a in a shitty recording studio. No, but Legion of Doom did make a really shitty Fostex four track demo. Nice. I do remember that, and I wish I I might have that cassette in a box somewhere. I don't know, but I remember that was that was the first time I figured out that if you just take the the cassette out and just put it in like a regular cassette player you and you listen to it see i had no concept of mixing at right. that point <laughs> right yeah so you just that? put it on and it only plays like two of the four tracks because the other two are like on the other side right. and you're like what the fuck where'd <laughs> right. everything go that doesn't sound like what we did right and one is left and one is right and it's like this sounds like yeah. the first ramones record yeah it's insane <laughs> mixing was just volume at that point right yeah so what like what was the connection between you know the years from 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 those years to you you know getting a job at Fat and getting involved in that oh, scene like what was that jump like There were a lot of years between those years so yeah. I you know I I um I moved to LA at the beginning of 1990 with a couple of friends and like our high school band kind of moved down there it was me and luke that was uh the the singer in um in lost kittens singer guitar player. okay um and one of my bestest friends and we moved down to la like you know to try to like make it and what we didn't count on or didn't understand was that like rock and roll had completely died oh, <laughs> Jesus. Time. like because right. like, we moved there at the beginning of 90 and it was in that weird gray period between like oh, right. you know all the sort of sunset strip rock and roll thing was was really dead and the next thing was kind of bubbling up but wasn't 100 percent there yet you know? right right so um so then I, I lived in la for like you know about like five years or so and like during that time in the early nineties, like, you know, I mean, you guys were around, like music just changed a lot. And, sure. um, and the punk rock thing was, was, you know, I, I think of like, like it was really like, like bad religion and social D coming back around. Right. Um, yeah. The late eighties that really kind of like kicked that whole thing off and, and then no effects turning into a really good band, you know, by the early late eighties, early nineties, you know, so that whole thing was going and I grew up with Joey from, from Lagwagon. And, um, so I was sort of a, uh, a spectator of it, you know? I see. Yeah. Wait, Joey was from Santa Barbara too. Yeah. Yeah. Joey's oh, I, from Santa La Lagwagon's from Santa Barbara. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't, I didn't know he grew up there. That's okay. Oh yeah. No, Joey, when we were kids was like, he was a few years older than me and he had a car. <laughs> and uh, and he was just like a well. He just always had the latest best record. Like nice, whatever right. the latest best record was, he had it, and and we were listening to it in his car. So he That's was awesome. like, I mean, Joey really had like a gigantic influence on, I think, a lot of people 
from Santa Barbara, uh, musically, you know? That's um, cool. yeah. And, uh, and certainly did on me, but like, he was like, in a lot of ways, he was like a huge gateway to like, you know, he'd, I'd go with him to shows down in LA all the time and stuff like that. But, um, huh. but yeah, so we were pals and, and I, and I sort of like, you know, I was never like close friends with fat Mike or anything through those years or like when, you know, when, when no effects was in Santa Barbara and, and after that, but I got to know him really through Joey eventually. And, um, there was a point in what year was it? It was 94 or so where me and Joey were talking about putting together a band and he, you know, it'd be like his side band um, for him. Right, but, right. Um, but I wasn't in a band. Like I moved to LA and I played around in bands and did that whole thing for a while and like never got a record deal. And, and then uh, there was a point there where I was working at the house of blues um, in the publicity department and working a lot and not playing in a band and kind of not super stoked on life, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, and Joey was like, dude, you sh- well, why don't you move? Let's move to San Francisco. I don't know where Joey was living at that point, but he was like, let's move to San Francisco and get an apartment. We'll put this band together. I was like, fuck yeah. I'm so, sorry. Right- just for reference, how old are you at this point? Well, this was the beginning of 95. So I okay. was, 23 still gotcha. okay so you know i mean i've been out of the house for a minute i was like an sure. adult um and uh and and right about that same time is when uh is when joe sib was in that band wax and yeah. they were had a song blown up on the radio and they were going out on the road with mighty mighty boston so i went out for this month-long tour roading for wax oh no which, shit uh, yeah, it was killer it was wax first face to face and mighty mighty boston's headlining it was like wow. a month long and that was my first time ever on the road. And I was so fucking jealous of like, I was green with envy at that point that like all my friends were touring and. And your brother too, not uh, only, right? No, this was, this was, so at that point he wasn't in face to face. Oh, okay. Was, okay. That, and there's a, there's a funny story attached to that too, that I'll get to, but like, Great. um, uh, so anyway, I do that tour and then me and Joey moved up to San Francisco and through that he helped me, you know, he put in the good word for, to, for me to Mike and Mike hired me at fat records nice. and I worked there for like a minute and, and, and then that's what led to me joining you no know, use for a name. And then, and then, you know, things were off to the races, but, um, I was, when I was in no use for a name, like for about the first, you know, probably almost the first year was the original ba- bass player. Steve was still in the band, but there was like a lot of tension between him and Tony. And, and, um, and I kind of like got in the middle of that when I joined and, and, um, and then, no use for name like parted ways with steve and matt from face to face had had left face to face so we got matt in our band and face to face replaced matt with my brother that's that's how that came to be what beautiful nepotism there i know right (laughs) and is it true when when you join no use for a name they just like walked into fat and you kind of like overheard they needed a guitar player well, I mean, I didn't really overhear. They they came in, the three of them, and their guitar player Ed had just quit, and uh, and it was right after Lecce Concarne came out, and that record was doing really well, and they yeah, were yeah. they were buzzing, and they had to leave for a tour. They had like a tour booked, you know, that was started the week after, and uh, they came in and they were like talking to Mike, and Mike comes out and says to the whole office, he goes, "Hey, look, you know, no use for names, guitar player just bailed and." You know, they needed a guitar player and they're going on tour and 
if anybody knows a guitar player, let me know. Like they need a guitar player. Right. And I just sat there like, fuck. And I, <laughs> like, I didn't want, cause I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want to be like, I'll play guitar. Like I had just gotten hired there. <laughs> yeah. You know what right. I mean? Sure. Um, and it was, it was cool. Like I was working at fat Rider. It was fucking rad. It was like, yeah, that was like yeah. the epicenter of the scene that I thought was like the coolest thing in the world. It, yeah. So you weren't moment. trying to play yourself out like, like that. Yeah. Early. I mean, yeah, I, sure. you know, yeah. and it's, and it's funny cause then Mike, I didn't say anything. And then they left. I don't remember exactly how this happened. They, or may, I don't, maybe they went to lunch or something. Mike came up to me and goes, Hey dude, that's cool that you like, I get it. You don't want to lose your job or whatever, but, um, but I know you're a guitar player and you should do this, you know? Oh, cool. And so he totally gave me the blessing and then I, I don't remember how this happened, but maybe they came back in. Somehow it got around that I was, you know, in the office that I was going to go try out for them. Like, I, you know, I had to go audition. And um, one of the other guys that worked in the office came up to me and goes, dude, you're, you're so fired, dude. You are so fired. Dude, when Mike finds out that you're going to audition for them, you are fucking fired. You blew it. And I was just oh, like, no. oh, fuck you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but didn't, Lag- didn't Lagwagon also like need a new guitar player like shortly after that? Didn't they turn over guitar players? What, what year was that? They did yeah because um not too long after that was when chris rest joined Lagwagon. right yeah. and you okay oh, so that was probably after you already in no use yeah i was already in no use at that point and okay. like we never even discussed me joining Lagwagon. but i did fill in a couple a couple gigs here and there i remember as a matter of fact the first time i ever toured brazil was um was filling in for chris flippin because he oh, okay. at the last minute couldn't go and it was like a week-long tour down to brazil and so i just you know jumped in and, and subbed. Right. Which was fun and wild. So when you're when you're working at like House of Blues and you're working at Fat, what what was your relationship with the guitar like at that point? Were you, you know, someone who was still plugging away, like trying to improve? Um or I mean, you, you like like where was that in your life at that time? It's so funny, man. I really I would love to sit here and tell you like, well, I was home, you know, working on my craft. <laughs> right. Yeah. Submitting demonstration tapes to the top <laughs> artist. You know, like but I was such a lazy fuck, dude. I just <laughs> felt I like I played guitar like because it was fun. You know right. what I mean? Like <laughs> right. I mean, honestly, don't get me wrong, like I wanted to like make it and be in a band and tour sure, and do all that sure. shit. I'm not I'm not gonna pretend that, that wasn't a big thrust, but I I really became more um I don't know, like, like I always played my guitar, you know, but like I, I, like I wasn't really like a songwriter or anything when I was younger. It took, right. I didn't really start writing songs till like, you know, my late twenties, I started trying to dabble in that. And it was a mm. funny thing. Cause I was like, you know, so late on the freight that I was super self-conscious about it for a long time. Um, and, uh, but yeah, no, I was, I was a fucking lazy jack off. I look back at being young. I'm like, God, I wasted so much time sleeping. (laughs) Why why did I do that? I could have been fucking doing all this shit. And now I'm like like, Ingve Malmsteen now. If I just woke up two hours earlier. Yeah. Yeah, With like fucking like a thousand song catalog or some shit. (laughs) You know what I mean? But I just slept through my twenties and my teenage years when I had all this time. And now I've got like kids and responsibilities and shit. Like I can't be, yeah, you know. <laughs> I, I would, you know, it's interesting when you when you do a little research uh, about you, and you know, I've 
learned a lot more about, you know, the personalities of, you know, the people who play music doing these interviews. And, you know, there's a, there's some people who you can see because of like the way their, their life played out and you're one of them. You just seem like a cool guy to be around. And oh, you should interview some of my former bandmates or current ones. <laughs> uh, yes, just go on. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'd get glowing reviews from everybody. Let's just say that it's an acquired taste. Okay. I think I've become. Okay. I think I've become a worse person to be around the older I've gotten in a lot of ways for lots of people. But um, I will certainly say that the one thing I did really well and worked hard at really all the time when I was like young and struggling and trying to get there and all that shit was, mm -hmm. and I think this is actually, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be a goofball here, but I think this is really important for, for like rock and roll and stuff. Um, Conolingus. I was always, I was always, Conolingus, baby. <laughs> no, I was always the, I mean, and Brad can attest this. I was always the last guy at the bar, man. Like I was uh, fucking, yeah. hang, I hung around. Dude. I thought I was, I was fucking, the last guy at the bar. What? We were all the last guys at the you bar. Were the last guy there. So you were the hardest. You, know I mean? you were the hardest. Like, hang. Yeah, I was, dude. I was. If if being in the right place at the right time <laughs> means something, then you know, then I was trying to like. I wasn't consciously trying to do that, but I was out and about and fucking like. In a, in a way that is so foreign to me now as a forty nine year old man. <laughs> right, yeah, well, um, you know. That, but like you know, I really was like like you because you gotta put you gotta be out there, man. You gotta be like yeah, in the in right. the in whatever scene is your scene. You gotta be a part of it. You know, sure, sure. Benny's lawyer, who was once my lawyer, said to me, the, like probably the most valuable information. She said, "The music business is the people business." Yeah, and it's pretty much true of any. She was like, "People want to work with people that they like," and it's yeah. kind of true of all businesses. But you know. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. You got to be a, you got to be around, and you know, and people want to, they, you know, they want, they need to want to hang out with you. Well, if you're unlikable, you just better either be making money or be really good, and then you can still have a. <laughs> you can be a lawyer. You can be a fucking lawyer then. But that is, but that is a really big part of it. Like you got to be able to like be in confined spaces with your bandmates over long periods of time and not drive each other nuts. You know, you sure. got to be able to hang in the van and no one to be loud and no one to shut the fuck up and, and all that stuff is those are, those are important lessons that, that you learn just by doing it. You but know? you know, sure. Benny, I should tell you this, Chris, I saw him punch one of the most famous publicists in the face several times. <gasps> And this was right during when he first started working with them. <laughs> you know who Steve Martin is? Yeah. He's literally like, you know, he's he's a monster. He's one of the biggest publicists. And shortly after Chris had joined the Foo Fighters, I watched him pummel Steve several times in the face. <laughs> is this like like fight club style? Like we all have an understanding, or was this was this a blow up? It it, it, it kind of, no, it was definitely not a blow up, but uh, but it might account for why Steve Martin never gets me any press. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, see, it's it's funny. Around the time I moved out to New York, you know, right after I joined Foo Fighters, and I had been boxing a little bit back in San Francisco, and so and Steve was into boxing, and so he hooked me up with his trainer when I moved to to New York and we were both training in the same gym and, you know, a lot of gyms like have like white collar fights. So they were having one and, and our trainer was like, you guys should, should fight each other. Uh, I'm sorry. What's a white collar fight just for, I'm not sure white, what you're talking white about. White collar fight is for like hobby boxers like me. You know, uh, okay, I mean, I think okay. they call it, it probably comes from like, 
you know, it's like some Wall Street guys or whatever, like right, right, going and and and, and sparring or whatever. But um, so we did that, and uh, and I'll never forget. There was a funny thing uh, after that. Steve was um, and of course, you know, I mean, we've worked, I've worked with Steve for a long time, being in the Foo Fighters and stuff, and he's a, a friend. And I'm totally not talking shit here, but uh, but <laughs> but I am talking shit. He uh, so we 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 do it and. I mean, I got to say that was the first time I ever fought in like a white collar fight. And it was so much harder than I thought. Dude, I was like right. out of gas right away. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just like, oh, fuck, this this is hard. And then um, but my I was just starting to date my wife, who who's now my wife at the time. We okay. just barely started dating. And a photographer friend of hers came down to the fight and took these really awesome pictures. And and I remember Steve. um you know, right after the fight was like, Hey, do you want to write like a story about the fight for, I don't remember what magazine it was, but you know, what is some magazine? I was like, Oh, cool. Yeah. So I like wrote a little thing and I go here, you know, I have this great shot from, from the fight, you know, you use this for, for the, for the article. And it was like, you know, I just looked all like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was this beautiful, like pr- pro shot. And then I'll never forget the magazine came out and Steve used a, a shot of him punching me in the face. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what he ran he I was like, oh, you son of a bitch. It's like vulgar display of power. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that so was funny. a hard lesson in the entertainment business <laughs> right, right there. Right. Uh, speaking of hard lessons, I, I, I did see one story and it, it alludes to what you were saying before about not everyone thinks you're that cool. And I guess it was a hard lesson you said getting chewed out by one of your famer, former bands and band members in Austin, Texas. Um, but oh, I don't, shit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's not really a fun story. I don't want to get into that. The thing that it made <laughs> me think of was, you know, and even with some friends of mine recently and people I play music with, this has been a conversation over the last couple of days, which is, you know, what is the thing, the engines that like, make these bands keep going and make them keep going in a happy way and make, you know, people stay engaged in the same goals and engaged. And the one thing from the outside, because I don't know him, it seems like Grohl is kind of just like a great band leader. You know, it seems to always be like happy and engaged members. And, and I'm just wondering for you, like, like what's his style of like presenting information and communicating to you all to like, make you feel that in that engaged and that that happy about what you're doing well i think you know like to get back to the the thing you were talking about down in austin like that was like that was on a um a solo tour that i did and you know that's a very different dynamic where it's like even though everybody's friends more or less like you know i'm hiring a band sure sure and it's not and and you you just said something about everybody being invested in like nobody's invested in the same goal (laughs) right in that situation so you know that was that was a tense thing that um that you know, it was a shitty situation for a lot of reasons. Cause we had like a whole, that was the, that was day one of a week of, of oh. South by Southwest, okay. you know? And then, okay. and then like a couple of weeks later, we had like a two week tour of, of the UK and Scandinavia. So like, I mean, that was a really good, like, that was a good moment for me to have to just like keep my mouth shut, you know, mm. to the best of my ability. Cause I sure. could have, because what I felt like saying in that moment <laughs> was very different than what I, I, I internally I was going, I could blow, I could just nuke this 
whole thing right now. Yeah. But then I bet I got all these shows, you know, right, I gotta right. do, and I got commitments, you know? See, I kind of um, eat, eat crow a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Big time, big time. And that's, that's, you know, that's not a necessarily a good feeling, especially when you're the guy fucking, you know, paying for the whole thing. I get to pay for this and I get to not say shit. This sucks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, as far as Foo Fighters go, I would say a huge thing. And it's, this is true. I think for any band, like forward motion mm. keeps, keeps bands happy. I think, you know, like forward motion, like we're always doing something and building on the past and like, you mm. know, like there's like, you know, knock on wood, like we haven't had, um, I mean, things just seem to kind of get better and better in, in, in Foo Fighter land for the, for the band, you know, right. the way the band like perceived and commercially and all that stuff. So like, you know, I think Dave does a really good job of, of, you know, he's a guy that always has like a million crazy ideas and then actually like figures out a way to pull them off. And <laughs> right. And that kind of thing keeps keeps it moving, you know. Like I feel like the Foo Fighters have never really stagnated, right? And that's you know, and um, but you know, like like it's a big band with a lot of people. There's a lot of moving parts, so you know, if you're not in the room, you don't necessarily catch everything that's happening. You know what I mean? Yeah, like right, it's not right. like like I feel like people always ask me questions about it. Like like it's like you know, like there's every day we have a meeting to go over the <laughs> right, agenda. Right. We're going to do X, Y, and it just doesn't yeah, work that way. You sure, know what sure. I mean? Like if you're there, you're there. And if you're not, you, you miss it. And, and that's how it goes. This um, is your daily foos briefing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So right. like, but, um, but I tell you, man, it's, it's a, it's a trip right now with all, you know, with, with the way this year has been. And, um, and you know, we had made a new album that was finished and mixed and we we're supposed to go on tour and then everything, you know, came to a screeching halt and then now we're working on putting the album out and it's um it's so strange you know, i was just talking to somebody about this like i have i'm so in my own bubble like i don't really really listen to like the radio ever and <laughs> right yeah i don't you know what i mean i don't don't read the same shit that anybody else is reading so i have no sense at all of, of of how this new record campaign is being you know <laughs> right met by the public or you know what i mean i don't know sure. like it, got some good feedback from the SNL thing and that's all good. And it seems like people are pumped on it. So, you know, fingers crossed, but it's a really weird time to make a record because you don't have the immediacy of going out and playing shows to get a sense of anybody likes your new shit or not. You know? Right. Yeah. But it's not really like there's anything else going on to distract people from it. Like a new record, you know, like things are pretty dead. Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me, except, except for like, you know, civil war and, uh, you know, the, the um, pandemic. <laughs> you know, there's one, it, since we're, since we're here with the pandemic, um, you know, that, so Benny and I have been doing this all through the pandemic and like one recurring theme with a lot of people is like, because it's mostly musicians, you know, is like everybody definitely misses kind of interacting and being on the road, but they also pretty much universally have had this sort of guilty pleasure of being like, Oh yeah, it's nice to have a break. Like I'm really digging, like staying home and chopping wood or whatever, you know, (laughs) is that your experience? I mean, you're a pretty busy guy anyway with like the podcast and your solo stuff, but yeah, no, totally. Because I mean, if, if, when I sort of think back over the last 
you know, many years, because I've been kind of bouncing between, you know, we'll do a Foo Fighter record and do a tour. And like, you know, somewhere in the middle of that, I'll go run out to Nashville and make a make a record. And then between Foo Fighter stuff, squeeze in some touring. And so I'm, I've been really like kind of back to back to back to back for for a long time now. And I, it's it's been really good to be home. Um, especially with like the age that my, my yeah. kids are all at, you know, is, exactly. is like fantastic. And, um, what so kind of posse able- you got over there? Oh, uh, I got three boys, uh, 17, 14 and 12. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. Like a so, basketball team. <laughs> I know for real. Yeah. <laughs> well, you throw, throw my wife in there and you know, that's that we got, yeah, five you got a f- starting five yeah. right there. Yeah. Totally. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been really good. It, it's funny. My kids are, are funny. I always wonder like, you know, of course they've grown up with me being gone a lot. So right. I think that's just baked into the cake, you know, for mm-hmm. them. But I always, but they're just funny. You know, kids are funny. You just don't know what's kind of what's registering with them and what isn't, you know, half the time. <laughs> Which one of that crew, like, you know, do any of your kids think what you do is cool or you're just nerdy Not dad regardless? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th- I think if anything, at least at this point, like what I do pretty much guarantees that none of them want to go anywhere near playing music, <laughs> having anything to do with it. Is that good for you? Okay for you? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm torn. There was, right. we, we, we made them all play piano and guitar and stuff over the years. And there was a moment there, you know, there was a couple moments here and there where I thought, you know, they were all sort of, you know, get gonna, gonna get into it the way that, that I did. But, you know, I like at the end of the day, I just want them to have something in their lives that, that there is, you know, that they're, that they have to have the way that I had to have music, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I want more than anything. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Would I love it if, if they were all like, show me how to play that Randy Rhodes lick? Like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, sit down. Some, they're going to be yeah. wicked DJs, <laughs> wicked DJs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they're, they're all really into music and, but you know, nobody, they, they listen to hip hop. There's, there isn't a lot of right, guitar stuff right. in there. So I have that, you know, what I do is not what's cool to them. Right. <laughs> so Benny, since you brought up the foos, I'm going to yeah. tell you, I'm going to relate my early memories of Chris, because we essentially lived together when you joined the band. Yeah. And we lived on the sixth floor of a walk up. <laughs> and you know yeah. what? Like what I perceived the biggest perks to being in the Foo Fighters was that the UPS guy had to fucking carry like tons of heavy free swag up the stairs. <laughs> Do you well, remember you know, all the shit that you got during like that first year? Yeah, those are the good old days when you would just get like a giant duffel bag filled with all the latest Hurley stuff or dude, whatever. You know right, what I mean? right, right, right. Duffel bag, dude. He brought yeah. up like a fucking karaoke machine. <laughs> you know what? You know, Brad. I'll tell you something funny. I never realized in those years that you could have the guy that drove the the car service carry your bag up like i didn't know that was a thing Uh, (laughs) and uh and so i would come home from tour with like my biggest suitcase just filled with shit that i collected (laughs) from wherever we've been and have to fucking like pull it up that you know what i you know what i didn't know back then when i lived in new york how stupid is this 
I'm such a like West Coast ding dong for not ever figuring out. I didn't know you could get your groceries delivered. <laughs> I would I would walk to the to the market that was like four or five blocks away and then carry bags uh, full of groceries home and then have to carry them up those fucking six yeah. flights of stairs. The man. stairs were brutal. They were definitely yeah. brutal. I felt bad for that poor guy. He also brought up you you like an electric scooter. <laughs> you remember this shit? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then what did yeah. Chris do with all this stuff? You used it to pay off, like <laughs> you paid people with. It. We're not supposed. To, we're not supposed to talk about this out loud. Oh, this is a long time ago. I, I think you're free here, right? This is, yeah, this is long enough. I'm not ago, mentioning any you brand know? names. Hey, it it all promote. went into the into the you know the black market. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I think somebody painted your room and got the karaoke machine for it. It can't, could happen. <laughs> Whatever. Happen. You should sell that stuff. I mean, it's crazy. You know, the the bigger and bigger Gaslight got, like the freer shit got, and it never made any or, sense to me. You know, I'm like, I have fucking money now. Yeah. You know, where the when hell you were, were you young people and five broke, years ago like, when you really needed a karaoke machine? Nobody was no giving karaoke it to you. machine. That's right. That's right. Where are all the free guitars when you're 16? Exactly. You know? <laughs> I guess you have to earn that stuff. What a what a load of shit. Um, <laughs> so I, I wanted to talk to you. I mean, a little bit about like your your solo stuff. Now, Brad, did you have, did you have anything else from the old days? <laughs> sure. Go uh, that memory lane. Is it time for our mystery friend? We got a mystery friend. So mystery sure friend is when we essentially prompt you for a story that we, I, neither of us were at. And um, you give us, fill us in, and then you need to guess who the, uh, who the mystery friend is who, who told us the story. Uh, okay. So, All right. I, I'm, can I guess before I hear the story? Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go with Johnny T. No. He just seems like I the obvious candidate. I would not. I would not put you on the spot, buddy. All right. You know. <laughs> Once this turns off, I'm asking stories about whoever the fuck Johnny T is because that sounds fun. This story, all I have is a graveyard party in Prague. Oh yes. Oh, oh. oh I, I. Well, now I know who told you the story. I, I absolutely know who told you the I'm, story. I'm sure you do. But uh, but yeah, that was that was on a uh, No Use for Name tour in, of Europe in 1997. To this day, one of the greatest tours, like funnest tours I've ever done. Definitely the only one I've ever done quite like that. I remember we were we were over there for um, 42 days and did 39 shows. Woo. Um, which, and we went everywhere, and a third of that was in Germany. So, I mean, we went right. to like every small town in Germany that you can imagine. <laughs> um, but, I, but yeah, that night we wound up in a... Um, in a graveyard in Prague. And the best part of that story, I mean, it was super fun. We were all fucked up, you know, running around. It was like me and and probably a couple guys from No Use for Name and and a few of the guys from um from Swinging Utters. And I don't remember if Suicide Machines were there or not, but we we like went into this creepy old graveyard and took all these photos with like the in the tombs and all this stuff. But all we had was like some shitty remember those like disposable cameras from back then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So we got the, all the photos developed and it was just our faces like brightly lit with the flash and you couldn't see the background at all. <laughs> right, yeah. So there's really no like uh, no proof of any of it. But um, okay, so if I have to guess who told you that, I'm going Max Huber. Yeah, I know because he was there. Yes, it could have been John Bush too, because he was there too. No, you got it. It um, was Max. I I thought I had a lock on you though, dude, because you know who I met this morning for the first time. Who? Justin J. What? And you I'm just gonna, met Justin for the first time. Yeah, and I'm going to give him some props How's that anyway. I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I don't think I've ever met him before. I mean, Kath obviously has and has known him yeah. for a long time. But yeah, I don't. I just met him for the first time this morning. His kids go to my school. I know. I know. I thought, That's that I crazy. Thought, all right. So maybe you would have guessed him. I was. I was. I hit him up for a mystery friend, and I just hit him. I just hit him up too late. I thought this would be. Yeah. This would be the one. But, I was actually just on his podcast. He has a fantastic podcast too called The Plug. Yeah, we should plug the plug. Let's did, plug the plug. Because I did hit him up and uh yeah. it looks good. He's got some really cool diverse guests that I yeah, I'm definitely yeah, gonna check sure. out some of those um some of those shows. Brad, what's going yeah. on in this high school? Your 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 this school, your kids go to school and you have all these this East web Village, of baby. connections via East school. Village. <laughs> Man. Is, yeah. this what, is, this, is this what you pay for living in it's tiny apartments school. in New York? It's a public this, school. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, man, school, school parent life at your kid's school is such a trip. Oh, it really I, is. A, can you guys give me any tips actually while I'm here? So, so I'm just cracking this for the first time, right? Like nice. my kids are three and five. They're both in the same program and I'm just starting to see these communities form you know what i mean the emails are coming yep you know they're asking for some stuff from time to time what is the approach here because i feel like being totally you know uh totally mute and totally black is rude and does nothing good for your kid but i do i'm getting the sense that if i go too far in i might not ever get out so well, yeah. So well, here's, here's what I here? learned over yeah, time. What's the when you're when you first have kids, you're like, oh my god, it's a miracle! Look at our little miracle! And you and you <laughs> and you start taking your kid to like baby group. That's the first thing. Mm. And you meet all these other parents, and they're all like, we have our little miracle, and everybody's like, yay! And you're super open, and you just want to <laughs> become friends with everybody and talk about your kids, and mm -hmm. that pretty much keeps going like all through preschool. You're like, can you believe these little geniuses, you know, and all that shit. And, um, and you make all these friends and pretty soon like 99.9% .9 of those friendships just fall by the wayside. Cause then you, all your kids wind up going to different schools right. mm -hmm. and then you just don't see any of those folks anymore. And then you get into elementary school and in elementary school, at least the one that like my kids went to, um, you're still very involved and you go in and you know the teachers and, and you, you meet all the other parents and you sit around. And you, so you still, so then you have all those relationships, right? And those, right. and you're still pretty open at that point, but you're starting to get a little cynical about the whole thing. You know, like <laughs> you're right, preschool right. has started to ring you out a little bit. Yeah, you know what I mean? Okay. And through elementary school, um, you know, you're still kind of like in it. By the time my kids got to, by the time my oldest son got to junior high, I was beginning to get a little checked out of the whole like, yay, we're all parents together thing. <laughs> um, you know, like, and, uh, and, um, you're like, uh, I don't need this community. Yeah. And it's funny because I kind of, 
found like, well, it's not so much I don't need this community. We did make a lot of really good friends. Sure, sure. And like our kids, our kids go to a K through 12. So like, um, oh, and it's okay. a great school and, and we love it and all that stuff. But, um, but I think that you're just, you're so fired up when your kids are young and you're first going through it that like we found like, we knew my oldest son's grade of parents pretty well. And then it's sort of diminishing returns for, you know, the younger you get. And like my youngest son, I didn't know any of those parents. Right, like, right. You go to like the sixth grade school project and you'd be like, I don't know half these people. How have I never, we've been in school for six years together. Like, <laughs> I don't know who any of these people are. Um, but, uh, but, uh, uh, all that said, then when, when, you know, once your kids get into middle school, then you stop being kind of involved in that way. You just drop them off and you don't don't go in and you don't, and, and then you really miss it. Then you're like, fuck, I never, I don't know my kids' teachers. I don't see any of my old parent friends, mm. you know? And you're like, and so you spend that last little part of elementary school kind of like grinding. And then when it's gone, you're like, oh shit, that's gone. Mm. And it ain't coming back. But I'll tell you what I did do a lot through the elementary school years that was great and I highly recommend it. And that is fucking parent band. If your school has one, oh. do it. <laughs> we had a great parent band at my kid's school. Cause you know, it's LA and you got all these musicians and, sure, right. you know, and even some like actors that are musicians and, and, uh, and then just a bunch of parents that are hobby musicians, you know, and everybody right, was right. pretty good. And, and we would do like a big gig once a year. And those were always really, really fun. And I always kind of like looked a little crossways at, at the parents that didn't do it. <laughs> why, why isn't the singer from Muse in the fucking parent band, man? What do you got better exactly. than you? You know? <laughs> oh, too you good know, for us, you know, yeah. you know, Oh, you can't come play the fucking Bruno Mars song yeah. at the assembly, yeah. huh, bud? Yeah. Okay. Look, I play stadiums too, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, you're going to love this, but so a couple of years ago, the principal who has, we, we've got, yeah, we've got like the parent band. We do like fundraisers. He actually organized a battle of the parent band for the <gasps> East. So for the last, wow. like, I think we did it for the last three years. Actually, that was the, that was my last night out before they locked down everything for COVID was the battle of the wow. parent bands. And we won for the first time in three years. You won. You really? took it. Yeah. Reigning champion, wow. man. Fucking. What what sick of all sick of it all song did you play? We <laughs> do scratch the surface. That was injustice the, system. We, we did a bunch of like we did a bunch of like fucking like total like 60s 70s jam rock tunes and nice. Off. It was interesting. Nice. But, interesting. Um, were you drinking IPAs on stage? <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Cold IPA for all my kids. But Benny, if it happens next time it happens, you're gonna have to come judge because that's the thing is I always tap my, you know, quasi celebrity and industry friends to come be judges at it. I'll do it. I'll do it for friends. you. I had one experience judging a battle of the bands and I I think I'm out. Oh shit! <laughs> I think I'm out. Even it's, though I, uh, I honestly, I quite dug a few bands, and it's like more, it's more fun than you would think because it's there's just there's a couple things I found from it that make me not really equipped. Okay, and a is like the people who seem like this idea they gave you a microphone after every band, like you were supposed to fucking critique right? them right yeah, after. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, there is zero chance. I'm sitting up here in front of a bunch of people critiquing these fucking bands. You crazy? I'm like, I'll give them a score, but I'm not telling these kids like what to do. You know what I mean? Like I'll right. never present myself in that way. Well, and that's the why battle, just, the battle of the out. parents bands. It's all for it's fundraiser. It's all for fun. And you just be positive. You just say some nice things. Is there pizza? Pizza? 
dude, you'll, I'll get pizza for you. For All right. Sure. Yeah. Is that, do you think that, the, is that like born out of like, um, American Idol culture or something? I'm sure it is. Well, hasn't there always been like Battle of the Bands? I mean, I remember doing yeah, I, I mean, in the sense band. of like trying to get Benny to like, well, you know, I felt like your oh, presentation yeah. <laughs> was a little off. And yeah, probably. you're probably right. It was. I think it was post that. Like, like they used to just hang, like, you know, pick up a scorecard, like the NBA slam dunk competition. Well, I, well but it's also I like that, you know, you're the judges are the most famous people in the room. You know what I mean? Like, right. I mean, right. we've got a few quasi celebrities in the, some of the bands. Definitely no Foo Fighters and no Muse people, but uh, I'll I'll do it via Zoom if you want. <laughs> that would yeah, be the way the next one gets done. <laughs> There's only one I, guy. I, I got to be honest, though. I did nail one person in my judging. Okay, and it was because the guy he he was playing in this like three piece that kind of sounded like like Motorhead or something. It was real fast. Every riff was like down to down to down down to down to down to down to down. You know those cool like hot beats and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, homeboy was a tapper, tap, tap, tapper. You know, he was barely hitting his drums. And then I saw him complaining to, you know, some 16 year old sound kid about the levels of his monitors. And that's the reason he couldn't play well and stuff. And that's Mm. the only guy I gave the business to when I was on the (laughs) microphone. And I said to him, basically, just like, listen, fella. If you can't hear it right now and you can't get through this experience, I, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it, kid. You know, <laughs> you, you can't pull it off at Porta Pizza in downtown Jersey City. You're not going to pull it off at like, you know, a squat in Hamburg or something like that, wherever you got to go. Nice next. job. Nice job. Yeah, well, that's a funny thing. I, I think about that sometimes like like that. Um and I don't remember this exactly, but there must have been, you know, when you first start playing gigs, you don't have monitors. There's no, no. sound for stage or anything, you know? And and then you hit that point where you start playing in clubs where they're like, hey, what do you want in your wedge? You're like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, can I get more? Can I get the hi-hat in there? Like, you're like, right. you're asking for the wrong shit, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just the DI off the bass. Um, or whatever. I don't know, you know, like. Just some wrong shit. Like uh, it's it's funny, but that that really is a like it's an important part of performing that nobody ever really talks about that much. Is your on stage mix? Right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That is yeah. something that should be. Yeah, that would be cool to like. What well, what's that being said? What's your mix like on stage? What do you like to hear? Uh, it's different in different things, you know, in Foo Fighters, I need, because there's like 800 of us on stage and we're louder than a fucking jet plane. Um, (laughs) I need a lot of kick and snare so that I'm, you know, that I'm keeping it together. Like I really am listening mostly to Dave's vocal and Taylor's kick and snare. Okay. And, and in addition to that, I have a lot of me and not a lot of anybody else, right. you know, cause I just start getting confused. Sure. I, start, I start losing, you know, where I'm at or, you know, losing where the one is sometimes if in those, in, you know, in big venues, it's like cavernous and you get like sounds bouncing around shit. So I just like a lot of kick and snare, Dave's vocal and my guitar. Are you on a, of- like inner ear systems for Foo Fighters? No, I tried that for a little while. And we're just so loud. Like I didn't feel like it was good because all I was doing was just turning it up really loud. Yeah, and I thought, right. It's probably like worse for my hearing yes, in the yes. long run. Yeah, you know. So I just I wear earplugs and I just I crank it up in in my in my wedge and that's about it. But like when I'm going out and doing solo gigs, if I'm playing in a like a bar, you know, I play little you know 
small little bars and shit. So, um, and they usually have crappy PAs. So I pretty much usually just put my vocal through it and let everything else come off the stage. And then if it's, you know, if I'm playing a solo gig and it's somewhere that actually sounds good and has a good PA, then I'll, you know, just kind of like put a little bit of everything in there. Yeah. Start adding a couple of things. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about that with your solo shows. Like, you know, like, as you said, a Foo Fighters show is a, it's a fucking freight train, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I know you really try to harness kind of a different environment for your shows. So how do you like peel it back and, and keep it simpler? And do you ever have to like catch yourself? Like you're, you're in kind of like Foo Fighters mode and you're trucking forward and you gotta be like, no, 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 no. Like, like chill out. It's a, you know, honestly, it's a work in progress. Like, um, mm. because I'm be, besides Foo Fighters, I just always played in really loud bands with right. big loud guitars and everything screaming. Um, and for my solo stuff, if I'm playing with a full band, you know, it just doesn't sound as good if I'm all, if it's all too revved up, you know? Mm, so right. I've, I've gotten more and more comfortable, um, playing it more laid back and definitely playing it quieter and, uh, and, and, you know, where you can like hear your vocal and stuff more. But I tell you, one of the best things I ever did was, uh, a couple of years ago, I started playing a lot of acoustic shows, just me and uh, an acoustic guitar. Okay. And that, that'll keep you honest. Yeah. You know? Right. Right. That'll really keep you honest. Um, that exposes the weaknesses real clear. I mean, as far um, as what do, do you think that exposes the most vocally or? Oh, vocally for sure. And, yeah. you know, it, it helped me a lot to become a better singer because I was always a really shitty singer and I always wanted <laughs> to be a better singer. And I was, in really the biggest problem for me, you know, you could just kind of got the voice that you got, but, um, but, you know, and sort of within that, then you can try to like learn a little bit of technique or whatever to, to help. And I would just, when I first started saying I was doing everything wrong, just tight, screaming, hunching mm -hmm. my shoulders up, putting everything through my throat. Just like if it was wrong, I was doing it. You know right, what I mean? Right. And it was because I was so, un I just wasn't relaxed. So playing the acoustic shows, like it just, you can't hide and you have to like breathe and fucking mm. push from your gut and do all that stuff that, that, that is going to make it sound a little better. So I I've come full circle on it where I love doing those shows now. And I, and I never did. And I always wanted to, so I just started doing a lot of them That's and it cool. was um really, really super humiliating at times, <laughs> but, um but it, but it helped. I feel like, you know, That's and it cool. certainly helped in the sense of just like getting comfortable in my own shoes, you know? Sure. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. You know, you made a pretty, you know, hard pivot, you know, from the outside, you know, from the worlds you were in to kind of the world you find yourself in now with your solo stuff. Um, when you were kind of doing that and making that turn, were, were you nervous about like the acceptance from your, your peers in, in, you know, the new world and more of a songwriter country kind of world? And, and how did you, how did you reconcile that? Like personally? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it definitely, um, I don't know. I don't know if I ever, worried too much about like uh i guess you kind of do worry about what people think a little bit but like i just knew i wasn't very good 
you know, I knew I like, I'm, I'm like, I just knew I wasn't very good. I knew I wasn't a very good songwriter and I knew I wasn't a very good singer. And I knew when I went out and played, it just wasn't very good. Like I just, if I'm being honest, I just knew that. Okay. Cause like I was, cause I was pretty good at guitar, you know, and I was in like a really good band and I'd been in other good bands. And so I knew what good sounded like. I knew right. that I was not good, you know, <laughs> I just knew it, you know? Um, and, uh, and so a lot of it was just, just, you know, kind of woodshedding and like, like just trying to be a better songwriter and, and, and work on some of the other stuff and try to just get more comfortable and, and with, with the performing side of it, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, like, I love, I love the rush of it. I love the thrill, you know, I love like when I go do my solo thing, it's like the closest thing that I still have to feeling like I'm in ninth grade playing my talent show where you're kind of like, I hope this fucking works, <laughs> right, you know, like, right, right. Nice, you know? <laughs> um, it and uh but uh but yeah i don't know i just that's that's like the part that i dig about it is huh. is is it is just the evolution you know have you found like the country scene i know you played like the grand Ole opry and did stuff like that have you found that world like pretty accepting and open i mean yeah yes yes and no like i mean i'm, I'm like i'm not gonna pretend that like i'm successful as a solo artist i've gotten to know like a lot of people in nashville and a lot of people in in not only in like the americana world but like um but in the mainstream country world too um and people are cool you know fuck there's i mean it's such a that nashville is a, a crazy town of just incredible depth right. of yeah. musicianship. Yeah, you know like um and i mean that on all fronts like the fucking greatest songwriters and the, the just absolute best players. Oh yeah. Know, you go to karaoke in Nashville and you're like, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's humbling. And I sort of come, you know, I'm, I've been lucky because I'm in a popular band that I can kind of come in through the side door and, mm -hmm. and, and, um, you know, I don't kid myself. Like if I was just Joe Schmo moving to Nashville to try to make it, I wouldn't make it. I am, <laughs> I'm not good enough. You know, <laughs> like I, I, I'm not even going to pretend that I am, you know what I mean? Like, um, but like, uh, but, but no people out there, you know, I've got a lot of good friends out there now and, and, um, and I, and I dig it. I, I, I dig that, dig all those scenes, you know, I think there's something to be said for, for the range of country music. Yeah, and it's sure. a really interesting thing. You know, I've, I've, I've always noticed this, like country music people are, they, you know, all, all musicians kind of love everything, you know, <laughs> but like country music people really are like, like know all about rock and roll and everything rock and roll people think that all of country music is toby keith yeah. it's fucking yeah, weird and right, like sure. it's really it's like one of the last things that you can sort of like beat up on and make fun of and i feel like for most of the time i mean every genre has its schlocky shit and it's pop yeah and it's whatever but like i've I honestly feel like country music is is really kind of misunderstood, like the depth mm. and the and the and the and the quality of just like the the art form. You know, it really it's it's a very different thing than than rock music or any other genre. And it's it's I just feel like it gets sneered at a lot by people that don't really know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. It does mainly because you know. The audience, I think now, and also modern country is '80s pop, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, a lot of it, sure, yeah. But I mean, what's modern rock? Yeah, it's you know, right. shit. Yeah. It's like this. What's the difference? I listen to those modern country songs, and I'm like, this is just the same song I heard on rock radio with like a slide 
and that's it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and well, and even a lot of times they don't even bother with like the the little banjo overdub or whatever. Right, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Nowadays, um, but whatever. There's the, like there's a lot of stuff in in modern country that I think is fucking great though too. I mean, I love it. Like Eric Church, Brothers Osborne. I mean, there's a lot a lot of stuff that's that's good. My point is, it's just like any genre. You know, I don't like most of any genre. But the good stuff is fucking great. And, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Country is still the home of the song, you know, like that's really 100 percent. That's the, yeah. that's what you can't, you know, if you know anything about music, you can't make fun of country because it's still it's, you know, it's like that's what rock is. Rock is the rhythm of 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 like blues and and kind of that rawness and the fucking songwriting of country. Like that's mm. what. That's what we listen to now on pop radio. It's interesting. Well, you know, I I defy you to like spend a little time with Merle Haggard's catalog and then say country music is shit. You know what I mean? Right. It's just I, I I don't know. I mean, but whatever. It's it's just music. It's just all you know, opinion and and what you do. I think it's got something it's to do no with right exposure wrong. too. It's one of the unique things about country is you know I'm born and raised in Central Jersey and by New York City. And fuck, like, I can't find a country song on the radio, you know, like I I cruise through and I don't even see one. And then when I start touring, you know, and I'm even I'm not very far. I'm like three, four hours south. Now I'm in Maryland. And all of a sudden there's a bunch of fucking country songs on the radio and it's kind of part of the narrative. And somehow, you know, for whatever reasons, I think country music kind of got maybe politicized you know, where, oh, sure, you know, yeah. you know, for people from the Northeast or something, you all, all you think about is a Confederate flag, you know, all yeah. you think about is something like that. And it kind of got put into that box and then it's just this blanket, like, yeah, whatever, you know? Um, so I, I do think a lot of it for people, at least from where I'm from, it's just exposure. I don't even think they have an opinion, you know, it's it's like right, not even a formed right, right. opinion about it. They just don't even right. know about it. No, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I will tell you, it was really funny when when my kids were really young. Um, they were they were they just kind of listened to my records and they kind of went through phases of like, you know, there was like a long kiss phase. You know, there was like a Green Day phase. You know, there was like a Hives phase an ACDC phase. You know, they just kind of went through that stuff. And they were really into it, and we'd get in the car, and they'd be like, play I Was Made for Loving You, or whatever, you know? <laughs> uh, and then if I tried to play anything country, like, my kids didn't know what genre was, you know? Right, right. Uh, they were too young, you know, to really understand what the genre differences were. But the second I would put on something, like a Buck Owens song or something, they'd be like, no country! <laughs> <laughs> they just had this like visceral hatred of country music. Huh. Right? And it wasn't from lack of exposure because I exposed him to it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, well, it so is funny, weird. man. Like they just, they they instantly hated it. Which well, I always thought there's was something funny. in the Matrix about let, it, I guess. Let me ask you this because, I mean, now they're teenagers, so they probably hate everything. But like, <laughs> I mean, I saw you with Dead Peasants, right? I think the first time... That I, that you must not have been doing it for very long. That time in Austin, remember I drove out. You had this gig out in the middle of nowhere, and I drove oh, you back yes. to the city. I had a minivan because I was down there working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was and, that like a, when we were down there for South by Southwest? Yeah, probably? like the Foos were playing yeah. that night. But I, I didn't really realize what I didn't. I knew you were doing a solo thing. I had no idea what it was. And I went out there and I was like, oh fuck. I was like, oh, Chris is, this is like, Chris is like Mescalero. It's like, he's just doing this mm. as he's got a great band and he's like, just trying to like have a blast with it. 
And it was fun. I mean, I like a lot of this, you know, I like the stuff you covered and I like, and I like the band stuff, but I gotta say, like, I'm going to blow some smoke, dude, this new record. I really like it. I, I heard like the, I watched the video when it came out and then I just kind of let it go. But before, um, you know, when you said you were going to come on the show, I went and listened to the whole thing and I really like this record and I can't figure out totally why. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't totally figure out what it is, but um, <laughs> it sounds really cool. And I, and I, and, and I just wondered if your kids like it because it's a little more refined. It doesn't sound as hokey, maybe. No, they, they don't like it at all. Right. Um, it, it's funny, <laughs> like, like with, the, with the dead peasants thing, you know, we like, I had never, I didn't grow up listening to country and had never played country. And so when we were doing the dead peasants thing, we were just a cover band for a few years. Cause right. I was like, mm. I just want to play these songs that I like and try to figure out how to play them, you know, and how to be comfortable playing them. And, you know, it's not like we were trying to be like, uh, some like, you know, refined, smooth, real vintage country band. We we're just kind of like doing it. Like, you know, what, what does Buck Owens sound like played by a bunch of guys that grew up listening to kiss? You know what it sounds like? <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and that kind of thing. But then with, with my, with the last couple solo records I've done, you know, I've, I've definitely like, you know, those aren't cover records, you know, and, and I've put a lot of, a lot more, um, a lot more effort into them and a lot more effort into the songwriting. And, um, and then, you know, working with Dave Cobb out there, it's like, that has a huge impact on it, right. you know? Okay. Um, and, you know, it, and it's not like, like those records aren't like country records per se. They're just right. kind of like country, country rock or country influence, or whatever, you know, it's Americana, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, no, that definitely didn't win me any points with, with my kids. And it's funny because one of the songs on, on my last record, I wrote about my son, like having his first girlfriend. And it's totally like, not the truth or anything. Right, I was just sort of right. inspired by that moment. And uh, I don't think he thought that was too hip at all. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll appreciate that later in life. Totally. Well, that's, yeah. see, that's the funny thing. Like that's what I'm assuming is going to happen. Cause it's kind of what happened to me with a lot of my dad's records is like, mm. I hated the music my dad listened to. And then when I hit like, you know, I don't know, 25, somewhere in there, I was like, Whoa, dad listened to like, he had good records. Yeah, you know, fuck. yeah, yeah. Stevie Wonder was actually better than the shit that I was listening I know, to. You know, I know. I Bob Marley this, was yeah. actually pretty damn good. You know, yeah. like. Um, oh, so I, it's funny. I, I, I have a, that moment. With I had a country. classic moment with my dad where I was like listening to like a Kiss record, and he, you know, came in and looked at it and was like, "What is this? Why do they have to dress up?" You know, and like, yeah, yeah, and, he, yeah. and then he said something like, "You know, Chuck Berry can play a lead while he's." doing a split and bending over and touching his head to the stage. And I'm like, whatever, dad, get out of here. And he, this is, I'm like 12 years old. He leaves the room and you know what I did? I went over to the Chuck Berry record and I pulled it out and I'm like, no shit. There's the picture of him doing the split and touching his head. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, this is fucking cool as hell. I tell you a parental music moment that I never forgot. And I giggle about it still is I remember being a kid and waiting and waiting for the new Ozzy Osbourne video to come okay. on MTV, and it was it was Bark at the Moon, yeah. You know? right. And this was yes. this was his first record post Randy Rose. Right. Randy Rose right. was like our fucking idol, and we were like so pumped and waiting for it. And I remember it came on MTV, and my mom was sitting on the couch behind me, and I was just like, I could, I was like practically crying. I was so stoked, you know. 
But inside, I knew it was fucking ridiculously shitty. Like, I knew it. Like, I, wasn't, I couldn't bring myself to admit it, but it was like, he's in a fucking tree dressed as a werewolf. It's like the dumbest thing. It's so not scary, you know what I mean? And my mom just sat on the couch laughing her ass off. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was just, I was so pissed. Fuck you, mom. You don't yeah. get it. You don't understand. Ozzy, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's too Classic. good. All right, there's there's something I gotta uh, just a f- you know it makes more sense that you mentioned that you did some boxing because um, I couldn't for the life of me understand like out of you know I'm looking at your list of podcasts I'm seeing like Lucinda Williams and you know all these great artists and then out of nowhere I'm like Manny Pacquiao like, where <laughs> yeah. the fuck did that come from you know and then I listened to a little oh, of the episode yeah. so please. Just walk me through, like, that must have been just a ridiculously weird situation. Can you tell me oh, what it's yeah. like, like, going to his house and, like, what's happening over there? I mean, I've been around a lot of celebrities or whatever yeah. over the year, but I've never seen anything like Manny Pacquiao's house and his entourage and the way that the whole thing sort of worked was like, I mean, it was, it was something else man i mean it was really fun because i'm a huge fan and um and a huge boxing fan um and you know i've been lucky like you know i interviewed uh robert garcia before oh, that, okay okay freddie roach and you know cool, some people cool. um and boxing's a funny world because like even like at church street like where where brad was talking about coming to that fight like you know when you hang out in, a, in almost any boxing gym especially in a big city you know, like pro fighters come through there. So it's it's not right. like other sports. Like you can encounter the best fighter in the world on any given day at huh. fucking Church Street. You know, and he might sure. be doing a public workout or press workout or some shit like that, you know, um, in a way that you're not going to necessarily, necessarily run into fucking Tom Brady or whatever. You yeah, know? like I'm not going to um, see LeBron at the YMCA. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know what I mean? And you and you get those moments in boxing. It's fucking cool. Um but yeah, so I I know um, Manny's publicist, and okay. he hooked up the interview, and I went over there, and um, and this was and, in New York or L.A. or no, this was in L.A. This was okay. in L.A. So he has like his yeah. own compound in L.A. too. Yeah, he's got a house, you know, okay. uh, in L.A. and and um, I've never seen so many people like in an entourage. <laughs> okay, it's like. The whole, it almost, I swear to God, it almost seemed like people were walking in off the street to take selfies with him. Oh, like people would just walk up to him to just, hey, can I take a picture? And he'd take a picture, but it was like, it was like you were on the sidewalk outside of your hotel room, like not like in your house. It was yeah. the fucking weird. Okay. Um, and I, I go over there and I got my little, you know, my mics and my laptop and I'm, and, uh, and I was kind of like, okay, we're not going to, you know, just hold on, just hang on a minute, you know, and my man, he's not ready. And he's kind of like, doing a photo shoot or something. It's like, okay, you know, man, he wants you to have lunch with him. And so we all go sit down. There's like a hundred of us at some table and I'm not like having a conversation with him or anything, you know, and he's over there and all these people and we, we have lunch and, and eventually, um, I interviewed him. And while I was interviewing him, there would just be like, people would come up and like film it and like stick their cameras in your face and his face. And, uh. and there's people ever, it was so unlike, like, that's like the exact opposite of, of every other interview I've ever done. You right, know, right. you and the person, it was like so much energy in the room and he was really nice, but like, you know, he's a pro, like he definitely wasn't, he did, he didn't like, uh, he didn't go there. I tried to get him to go there on a couple of things and he was not taking the bait. So, um, yeah. so he, you know, 
he was cool. But and then at one point, they had told me to bring a guitar, and and um, I think I wound up like it was so weird. I think I played him a song at one point, you know. <laughs> and, I'm just, and while I'm playing him the song, I'm like, you know, maybe Manny Pacquiao knows who the Foo Fighters are. Like he probably does. Right. I don't know if he's a fan or anything, but he definitely don't don't. He ain't listening to no fucking Chris Shiflet songs. Wait, did he like <laughs> demand yeah. a song? Like you play for me yeah. now? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. I mean, not really. Like, oh, you know, you know, and, and so I'm sitting there playing like, I grew up in a West Coast town. I'm just thinking like, he doesn't give a shit about this. Like, come on, what are we doing? Um, and then I think he played my guitar a little bit too. And then oh, and he, then j- he jammed a little? Like, a little bit, yeah. And it was like a four hour day, you know? Wow. It was like, it was, uh, it was, it was nuts. It was cool, man. I'll never forget it. That's for sure. Definitely the weirdest interview I've ever done. Until this one, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, he's essentially like, you know, he might be like the president of the Philippines soon. So, right, you, 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 uh, you're connected. This, this might branch you into like, uh, you know, more of a political journalism career now, Chris. If well, if you see me become like the uh, Filipino minister of kick <laughs> kick ass rock and roll, uh, <laughs> you'll know where that came from. <laughs> I do believe that's a cabinet position. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it could be. Could be. <laughs> it is down there. Yeah. What's um? What, so when you're at home, like with a you know a number of kids, what's like a what's a Foo Fighters songwriting process like? Um, you know, w- like in what shape do you get songs, and and uh, when do you get to start like putting putting your work on them? Well, usually Dave will go record a bunch of ideas, you okay. know, and he'll just he'll just make demos just by himself, or maybe him and Taylor will get together and record a bunch of demos or whatever. So usually at some point there's like you know you'll get like a a you know nowadays you, well it used to be a CD and now nowadays it's like a Dropbox right like, here's yeah, yeah. twenty five new ideas you know and and normally we'll like jam on them and and they'll evolve. Um, this new record we there was, we would sort of jam on them right before we would record them for most of them. Okay. So there's a little less like pre-production stuff, but, and then it's really just like most of the time it will start with Dave will lay down a, um, a, a guitar track, like a, just a scratch track and Taylor will get a drum part, you know, get a drum track on. And then we just start building off that. Usually Dave will put his guitars on there and then I'm usually next or Pat, you know, either me or Pat usually goes next. And then Nate is in there and, and then Rami and then, and then Dave will put vocals on it usually last. And that, that process is usually about a week per song. Oh, wow. It's kind of, okay. kind of what it works out to, you know? Um, and, uh, and yeah, so like when I'm putting guitar tracks on there, I'm, usually I don't really know what the vocal's doing. So it's a little oh, bit of guesswork. Interesting. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it depends because, you know, like the, you might have like the entire band sitting on the couch behind you as well as the engineer <laughs> yeah, and the producer great. and the crew and everybody. Um, or it might just be me and the producer and the engineer, you know, sure. and, uh, and, or any, you know, version of that, you know, uh, it's funny, man, being like being in a band like our band has really like I was so freaked out by that when I was younger, you know, about having to kind of get up and and work out a part while everybody's sitting, you know, while you got like the chorus of people behind you, like 
a short order cooking you. Sure. No, don't do that. Yeah, do that. Right. Don't yeah, do yeah. that. Do that. No, do this. Do that. Yeah, you know, like yeah, yeah. that whole thing. But I kind of, I really dig it now. Like I kind of thrive on that. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's just how we always do it, you know? So it's like, yeah. you gotta, you gotta just kind of jump into it and just roll and, with it. Uh, get comfortable. With yeah. It you know, and there's always like, I'll bring in like an idea of what I want to do, but that always changes based on what Dave's thinking and what, and what the producer's thinking and, and you know, what, whoever else is on the couch is thinking and it just always gets banged into something else. And have you been writing songs with Dave so long now that you, do you feel like you kind of, have an idea like what he would want to hear or, or is it, is it super open in your head when you're going into it? Oh, it's really interesting. Like, you know, I've been in the band like 21 years now yeah, and we've made a bunch of records and yeah, I, I think I do have a pretty good sense of at least maybe not exactly what he's going to want me to be playing, but I know generally speaking what he doesn't want me to be playing, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Okay. Um, so, you know, I know certain things to, to maybe just not do. What's something uh, that'll never make the cut with uh, like a whammy bar, something like that? Oh, yeah, whammy. Well, maybe. I mean, that almost could make the cut. I don't know. <laughs> I was trying, sometimes it's like, some, like there's a couple tracks on this new record that I was like, wait, what? You want, you want me to do what? Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because there aren't really a lot of like leads in Foo Fighters songs. And there's a couple on this new record that I was like, oh, okay. You want me to go there? Let's fucking go there. Right, right. Um, and uh and and so stuff like that. But you know, it's hard to put a finger exactly on what not to do, but it's it really depends on the song. Right. You know, I sort of I, I was going to like figuring that like a pretty high percentage of stuff isn't gonna wind up in the mix, you know? <laughs> like it's just the way that it goes, you know. Right. And, and what and the things that get in there, you know, are hopefully some good stuff. That's cool. So you don't. So you you're not really like living and dying with every part. You're just like, you know, you're in there. You're creating the best thing for the song, and then just see how it plays out, kind of. Well, it's a trip. Like with the way that we made this new record, because you know we made the record, and then everything shut down for months, and then we right. got back together to, and and we're rehearsing and stuff to get ready to do some performance stuff for around the record. And I had to go back and like kind of relearn the songs, you know, mm-hmm. and you got to figure like, I'll, we didn't do a lot of pre-production. So there wasn't like, it wasn't like parts that I had like worked out over weeks or something. It was like parts that you just kind of figured out in the moment. Right. And then I'd listen back to the song and be like, I don't remember what the fuck. I, did. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. If, I don't even know if I'm on this, you know what I mean? Much <laughs> less like, like if maybe I did that thing. That sounds kind of familiar. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they, there's always that too. Like you get a mix back and there might be fucking 20 guitar tracks. on. you're like, I don't fuck. I can't even tell what any of them are doing. Yeah. You know, right. Do some version of it, you know, that, that sounds right. <laughs> you, you guys know? need like one of those, like, uh, what do you call them? Like an orchestrator to come in after the fact and kind of like chart it out. Okay. You're going to play this part. You're going to play this part. You know, seriously, it, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point we get with the, there's like the Foo Fighter MD. <laughs> you know, like, uh. There's one thing I, I wanted to talk to you about while I had you here, because you're in a, a unique position to answer this question. Uh, you know, and I've asked this question to a lot of people who are not nearly as um, uh, as well versed to answer it as you are. So. You've basically, as you said, you've been in one of one of or the biggest hard rock band in the world in the last twenty years. So, where do you see 
the future of hard rock? Like, like what things like should stay and are undeniable and what things should we get rid of and changes we can expect? Well, you know, it's always nice when like a strokes moment happens. Mm. Like I, lo- I love that, you know, there, cause there always seems to be a, a back to basics kind of stripping away of the, right. of the excess, you know, thing. And then that happens in various ways. And it's always different, you know, like Nirvana worked that at one point, you know, like, sure. I mean, people probably don't remember it this way, but Guns N' Roses was that, Oh yeah, you know, mm. uh, but uh, and in that whole strokes, I mean, there's always kind of those moments, you know, the punk rock was was that, you know, the original version of it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't want to talk shit about other bands and what they do. And I always figure like if 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 people have success, good, you know, God bless them. It's it's a tough racket and <laughs> not a lot of people do. But I know what what appeals to me and what doesn't. And I I just don't I'm not a huge fan of um most like modern rock modern heavy rock mm-hmm. you know it's just not a sound that appeals to me um really ever you know <laughs> I, and i love i love like my old heavy metal records i love classic rock i love all that stuff you know i don't know if it's just because i'm you know getting old um because you talk about this shit and you just sound like you know your grandpa or whatever but <laughs> i just i just i don't know man it's not for me I like I like my rock and roll to sound like Ronnie James Dio fronting Rainbow, you know. Right. That's that's what I dig. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it comes back. Whatever. It comes back to the songs, dude. It's I think when genres get too old, that people think that the songwriting falls away, and it just becomes about the sound of the genre. You know, that's mm. kind of what it seems like to me. Modern modern heavy rock. When I do hear it, always just sounds real fuzzy. I don't know. <laughs> It just sounds like oversaturated gain. Oh, guitars, these kids you know? these days! It's so I, you know, fuzzy. <laughs> give me the guitars. Give me that. I'm give me that it. thin, brittle Marshall. I'll take it all day long. You know that that difficult, thin, brittle Marshall with not too much gain on it. It is. It is hard to like rock that. Like, I mean, yeah. Listen to the listen to all the early shit when they're playing through like fucking Vox amps and uh, totally. Yeah, the there was so much glass in that sound, and it was right. so like kind of yeah, it was brittle, right? And uh, but it rocked, dude. I mean, I think that there's a lot of like obviously there's great music that gets made in all kinds of different ways, and um, and I shouldn't talk shit because of course we use Pro Tools and Logic, and our shit is totally manipulated digitally, <laughs> all that stuff. I get it. But um, I think that that is a is a, just a gigantic part of the problem for me personally with a lot of modern music. I just say music, not necessarily heavy rock, but I just think I like that's what I love about records from a certain, you know, from the 50s to the 80s. Like that's like it's not like people weren't cheating and fucking around and layering mm-hmm. shit, and manipulating things, of course. But it pretty much sounded like it would sound if you were in the room with Hank Williams to right. listen to one of his records. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um at least on a good night, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's what I dig. That's the shit that I dig. I mean, I get it. I, I mean, it's partially a baited question because, you know, I fucking hate most of it. I I don't have <laughs> as much as stake here as you. Like, I'll just go into it. Like, I, I think most of it fucking sucks. Um, but as, as a guitar player... I don't want to get beat up at a festival by all these bands, you know what I oh, mean? Oh, I know, and they're usually jacked. 
like the people in these bands. They're usually like 21 and jacked. And I'm like, you know what, motherfucker? You were on the football team and you should have stayed there, okay? Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I really, I really shouldn't talk shit because like, you know, I've, I've been making, like writing a bunch of songs and recording lots of demos. And I always love like, I like when, when like, you know, like that era when the Clash were like putting crazy drum machines on things. And right. it's like that hybrid. And I do that on my own music and I'll probably do that on some of my new solo stuff in a way that I haven't really done before. Like maybe have like some kind of like, like drum machine shit going on in there in a way, you know, with the analog thing. I love that when you overlap those two things. So I, I'm not like a Luddite exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm not anti-technology. I just, I don't know. I'm old and I've been around for probably too long and, and it just takes certain things to get me excited. And, and yeah. most of what I hear doesn't. Well, it's it's not about it being, uh, you know, being inventive and, you know, treading new ground and stuff. You know, it's a huge part of music and rock and roll just in general. Well, lucky for us, the genre seems to be completely dying. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, we, probably, yeah this, probably won't even be an issue anymore. Yeah, this conversation's <laughs> moot in about, in about 16 months anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, good for us. Good yeah. for us, rock is dying. Bunch oh, yeah. of old seems... old rock dudes on podcasts. We'll Let's... all have a lot to do. <laughs> Let's end it on, on a bunch of grouchy guys bitching about the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good place to come yeah. out. Get off my lawn, you little bastard! <laughs> now, Brad, what do I do with this file? Do I leave it open? Sweetheart? It's so it's so fitting that this interview started with me watching a YouTube tutorial on how to use flex pitch. <laughs> that now, that? now we're ending on this. <laughs> you completely freaked me out with that. I couldn't figure out what was going on. But Chris, yeah, Good thanks so you. much for coming on uh, last minute, giving us all this time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. no it was worries. So much man. fun talking to you. It was really fun, man. I, I enjoyed it. And I, I always love going on somebody else's podcast, so I don't have to do any preparation. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again. Right on, guys. All right. That was long overdue. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What a guy. What a fun guy. And what a cool life. I, you, you know, know, yeah, I, I, um, Last time I saw those guys, I, I, uh, after the show, it was at MSG, Madison Square Garden, and I sent him this picture that I had taken from the side of the stage, which was, uh, he, it was two of his boys, mm -hmm. and then at least, and one other kid, maybe one, maybe Dave Grohl's son, or, you know, at the side of the stage, like watching these guys, and it's a great shot. It's, I, I sent it to Chris, I'm like, hey, I really enjoyed your bring my kids to work day experience <laughs> and it's you know i got the perfect angle the kids are sitting down like on the side of the stage there's chris like in the lights and then you can see all the audience of like madison square garden out there and it's like, so cool <laughs> bring your kids to work day dude meanwhile you uh, know as he said his kids are completely jaded on his music <laughs> although maybe they're foo fighters fans who knows but yeah that's a that's been a pretty hilarious theme that's come up concurrently in going off track <laughs> is all these like really great musicians and borderline like famous rock stars whose kids could give a right. fuck they got to right i mean they got to that's what your kids do they don't so think you're but cool. what what's the trick then because like i always see like say okay Right. I saw Rob Trujillo, you know who that, you know, or I'm not, I don't know if I'm saying his name right from Metallica right. who was in suicidal tendencies, that guy, mm -hmm. like his kid 
came up to play with Metallica fairly recently. And he looked just like him. You know, it was he just had the long hair, the stash. He played bass. He played bass well enough to be in Metallica. So I, I wonder what like where what's the like what did he do to get his kids into it when people like you and Chris are telling me, yeah, like my kids fucking hate what I do. It's they can do shit. Well, after the fact, your kids grow into it, you know? Like it's yeah. like I think the thing that I love about it is I think it's, you know, for all the non rock stars out there whose kids think they're not cool. Just remember (laughs) Chris Shiflett's kids don't think that he's cool, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so just take it to heart. You know, it's a good message. Yeah. There's like just no dad in the world. Who's just not like the biggest, like goof nerd to their kids. It's weird. But then I see, okay, but see maybe we're just not being military enough on him right because because i just heard a story about a guy named dk metcalf he's a football player we won't get into it but basically the guy is like the most jacked athlete you've ever seen like no human should look like this and there was a story that his father was claiming that he could bench press 50 pounds and squat 100 pounds at five years old and then i'm like looking at my son who's five (laughs) and i'm like what the fuck you doing? Like you haven't benched once, you know, like, like I'm like, it's possible, but I don't know if these people are like making their kids do it and yeah. drilling it into it. Or if they actually showed a real interest, you know, uh, I feel like I'm going to be such a hippie about everything. It would be like, yeah, bro, like do what you want. I just, I He's just probably not going to do anything, but play fucking video games. Like, I, should I be harder? I just don't know that kids until a certain age, I feel like, yeah, I think the parents are drilling it into them. I think it takes to a certain age before you can get interested in. Although I got to say, my nine-year-old is really, for some reason, taken to seeing how many sit-ups he can do. And he claimed, I've sat and watched him do 200 like that. And, what? Yeah. And he just, and he claimed the other morning, he gets up, you know, he gets up before everybody else in the house. And he came in and woke me up at like 730. He's like, dad, I just did 450 sit-ups. Get the fuck out of here. What's going on there? I don't know. It's probably one of his buddies, you know, had a contest with him and he thinks it's cool to do sit-ups. So that's his thing. I'm like, do some freaking, you know, push-ups too. If you really want to, if you really want to get this going. You're like, bro, please (laughs) just do some arpeggios. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Something. Skip the sit-ups, man. Can you do some scales? He's doing, he's doing good. He's, He's into guitar. He's been playing. He's really into Ozzy. The first thing I think he ever learned was uh, was Crazy Train. That's pretty tough. Yeah. All right. So I guess you're doing it. If your son's playing Crazy Train on guitar and doing 450 sit-ups in the morning, it sounds like (laughs) you got a pretty cool fucking ripper over there, Brad. I think you're doing a good job. Of course, it, it took a cousin to really get him into the guitar, though. But yeah, he had a head start from me. And Dude, I can't. I just imagine one of his little nine year old friends doing the like Rocky thing right now. You know, where like he sits up and then he smacks his stomach twice, <laughs> you know, to get it nice and hard for the boxing match. What if your son wound up like in the spirit of what Chris was talking about with boxing and Manny Pacquiao? What if your son wound up being like like a featherweight boxer? Hmm. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about boxing, but yeah, I could deal. Featherweight's not bad. Would you wear a pimp suit to the match? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Tell me what. All right. You have (laughs) unlimited budget, unlimited budget. And Oscar is fighting his first title fight 
at <laughs> at Bally's oh, or no Caesars down in Atlantic City. What do you wear, Benny? I'll tell you right now that before I had got married and had kids, yeah, I took a trip to Las Vegas with a good friend of mine, and before mm-hmm. we went, we went out of our way to find the nastiest polyester cowboy <laughs> suits but like suits you know like a jacket you know with yeah, like those yeah, lapels yeah. sure and cowboy hats and we did va- and and nasty like elvis sunglasses and we spent a weekend in vegas and we didn't leave our hotel without wearing those suits wow so i'm ready dude i will wear i will pimp out for vegas anytime all right, all right. i still have two questions then. <laughs> so all right that weekend Tell me, like, were people treating you differently? The the the, the only part that was kind of embarrassing was we were at Caesars at, like, 2 in the morning, and this drunk... um, (laughs) This drunk American indigenous person Mm. came up to me and was, like, couldn't Uh get... Was so psyched. He's like, it's so good to see two real cowboys <laughs> in Las Vegas. <laughs> what did you do as you play it I off? I was so embarrassed, dude. And I was I was so looped that I just played it off as best I could. And yeah. He was really wasted, that dude. So. Brad, the ranch hand. All right, so... So we found out that, but all right. So you still didn't tell me. I want like a basic description. I might revive that exact suit. I might revive it. It was, it was, it, it was good. It was very uncomfortable. It was full poly, like thick polyester. Like you would, it would never, you couldn't wrinkle it no matter what you, what you tried. And uh, I, I might go for that again. You know, it's so tricky when you're like an alternative guy and you have to wear a suit. You know, I never know how to play it. Right. Cause you know, cause if you just wear a suit suit, you look like the guy who wears a suit once a year and puts it back in the closet and then yeah. wears a suit again. <laughs> like it's pretty obvious. You're a guy who doesn't wear a suit every day. Right. And then the other option is kind of that, like I'm a rock and roll guy wearing a suit look, you know, which always has like the same elements to it. It's like, it's like, oh, foreigner won a Grammy. It's like what they would wear when they went up. You know, it's there's some element of leather or something like that. Oh no. You know what I mean? You like just need to get like, a it's tasteful. almost like for someone like me, I can't find a non-embarrassing way to wear a suit. So I have even considered like, I'm not saying I'll ever win a Grammy, but if I do, or if I go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or something where like I'm gonna have to be an old man displaying myself in a rock and roll scenario and I have to look nice. I've considered like, how would I play it? Am I playing it straight? Am I going to be like old rock and roll dude? Look, you know, with the, you know, a little bit of chest hair popping out, maybe a cool (laughs) necklace and some rings or something. Or do I just go full on? Like I don't take any of this seriously and wear like a dumb and dumber tuxedo. You know, like with the the orange hat, right, right? Or do I go flat pimp? You know, like, but but then, am I appropriating another culture? I don't know, man. I don't know what to do with my suit game. I, you know, I always think 
that you can't go wrong with just the classic sort of like rat pack thin tie mm. like fairly trim cut you know i mean american suits are cut like shit you know you got to go with like a more european cut it's kind of trim yeah and you can't go wrong with that look dude no matter whether you're a rocker or a fucking mod or whatever yeah you know yeah i tend to lean towards european soccer coach <laughs> you know like like the slim cut shirt i actually i'll just i'll just say it right here those guys are great looking you know yeah they're great looking men and they 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 just look great they age well. that's what i try to do yeah they age well so yeah i'm like trying to be like a mid-40s like italian uh soccer coach who's in like the bundesliga like yeah that's like my look i think okay yeah all right pretty interesting stuff huh Hey, Chris Schiffler fans, did you enjoy that? <laughs> There's nobody still here. We got to wrap this up. So listen, okay. I thank Max again. I want to and thank Justin Jay. Uh, he's got a podcast called The Plug. We plugged it in the middle of the show. You should check it out. Chris is on that show. Um, and he's got some other guests that are pretty interesting. He's kind of just getting it going. But there's a bunch of interesting episodes up there. Um, you can find Chris on Instagram at shifty seventy one. That's S H I F T Y 71. Uh, he's at Twitter at Chris Shiflet 71. And you probably can't guess the year he was born. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us, of course, going off track at all the socials, goingofftrack.com. Mm -hmm. Leave us a nice review on iTunes. Mm -hmm. uh, you can leave us a nice tip at Venmo at Off Track. Mm -hmm. or if you're really serious and you really want to be, you want to join the team, as I like to say, patreon.com slash going off track. There's bonus material up there. There's actually, if you're an Uber fan and you're still here, there is going to be some bonus material from this interview because mm -hmm. after we stopped recording formally, I still had my ghetto recorder going and we had a little conversation about stuff that, um, could have been part of the show, but it won't be. It's for patrons. I didn't say anything only. embarrassing in that in that part, did no. I? But, well, I, but I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that you did so that people want to go listen. Yeah, to it'll it. only be our Patreons who can hear it. So <laughs> so you let me know how bad I embarrassed myself. Well, thank you, anyone who has been here for the last two hours. <laughs> Today also marked the forty year anniversary of John Lennon's passing. Ooh. So I want everyone to uh Imagine peace and love and understanding. Try to be cooler to each other. Take care of each other. Team human, you know? I hear you, dude. We could All use right. some. So I love you, Brad, and I love everyone out there. Well, not everyone. If you're a piece of shit, I might not love you. <laughs> I've cursed a lot. Let's go. All We're right. Done. Good night. <laughs> Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.